Hello and welcome to the ACT 2025 podcast, a New World Resources Institute series looking at the forthcoming COP26 climate conference from the point of view of the most climate vulnerable countries. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, we're looking at the issue of rules. Why are they so important to climate action? If you allow countries to just do whatever they want, to claim whatever they want to say, then you will end up with a meaningless agreement. So what are the principles that vulnerable countries want to underpin the rulebook? We know that it's not always possible to have perfect rules, but it's better to have solid days instead of having something that is super weak. Hello. The forthcoming COP26 climate negotiations kicking off soon in Glasgow are widely seen as critical if we're going to avoid catastrophic climate change. But how do we make sure that the priorities and interests of lower income, more vulnerable countries are being represented at COP? Many of them have joined a grouping called Act 2025 to make sure their voices are heard, and this series is about the issues that are important to them. In this episode, we're looking at the vexed and complicated issue of rules. First, WRI's Molly Bergen spoke to Tony Lavinia, Executive Director of the Manila Observatory in the Philippines, one of the Act 2025 partner organizations. The most important reason why the right rules have to be in place for the Paris Agreement is that this is an experimental approach in an international agreement where you actually allow the different countries to develop their own commitments. In other words, every country is left to determine what it's able to do, given its baseline emissions, given the impact of climate change on that country. So having said that, it's very important that this is done right by every country. And when it's actually adopted and implemented, every country becomes accountable for what it says it will do. But how to do that, how we will measure it, how we will report it, how often do we report it, that is subject to the rules of the Paris Agreement. Because if you allow countries to just do whatever they want, to claim whatever they want to say, then you will end up with a meaningless agreement. You won't be able to achieve your target. What is at stake if the the right rules are not put into place? Well, what is at stake is you will not achieve your objective to stabilize the climate in time so that adaptation is possible. That's the objective of the Paris Agreement. Or we do not go beyond two degrees increase since the Industrial Revolution. But the Paris Agreement also considers 1.5 as the aspirational goal. Ideally, that's what we should achieve, right? Now, if you don't have rules in the Paris Agreement for transparency, for how the reductions are measured, how often they are reported, if you don't have those rules, we will never get to that cap of 1.5 or 2 degrees, and we will end up with runaway climate change. So what are the current sticking points, the things that people are debating right now within the negotiations uh, regarding the rules? The rules on finance have to be laid down so that we can measure the developed countries' compliance or performance with respect to finance. That is also a continuing uh, debate because we want the developed countries to be able to to deliver on their commitment. And they can only be delivered in their commitment if you also have a good way of monitoring and measuring the assistance that they're supposed to give, that legally obliged to give. Probably the most controversial rules that's still being negotiated now is the sustainable development mechanism. Uh, This is the market mechanism where countries can 
support activities in other places and get credit for it in terms of their own uh, nationally determined contribution. In other words, can Japan help the Philippines with its own nationally determined contribution? And if they do, how can they be credited for that? So that's very contentious because that the loss offsets. Some people think that gives a free pass in terms of reducing their own emissions. Across the board, too, we need to have safeguards so nobody can be tempted to just greenwash and you know do meaningless things but appear that they're doing something, right? So that, that's very important. You don't have a double counting. And that's not difficult to do. That's actually quite doable. But there are also human rights safeguards that are necessary for, for certain of these things that we're talking about. For example, the sustainable development mechanism would require you know, safeguards to protect indigenous peoples, local communities, women, children, and those that are, that are vulnerable, not just from climate change, but the responses to climate change can also have an impact on, on vulnerable populations. The rules on the sustainable development mechanism can allow, for example, you know, developed countries to invest in forest activities in developing countries. As part of the rules, we should have safeguards that says that you cannot do like say, a reforestation activity in an area that is owned and occupied by indigenous peoples unless you have their free prior informed consent. If that safeguard is disregarded or not included, not acknowledged, right, then you can actually have potentially a country doing things in their forest purportedly for climate action but having this serious impact on indigenous peoples. And so you want to make sure that your international rules will not allow that to happen. How can we create the right conditions needed to make sure that these rules do what they're supposed to do, that they you know, do encourage climate ambition, but they also respect the rights of vulnerable populations? The process of arriving at the rules and adapting them needs to be as inclusive as possible. And when Glasgow actually begins, that there's a big effort not just to involve the people that are in Glasgow themselves, but especially if those people are few or might not even be there because of the pandemic, then you need to be able to reach out to them virtually and make them participate. And that was Tony Lavinia. You're listening to a special WRI podcast series on what vulnerable countries want from COP26. Next, Molly Bergen spoke to Sandra Guzman, founder of the Climate Finance Group for Latin America and the Caribbean. She says the whole structure of the negotiations, their effectiveness and fairness, depends heavily on getting the rules right. We know that the construction of the Paris Agreement, it has been very difficult to put together because we are sitting in a table with 194 countries with completely different interests, completely different needs. It requires trust between developed and developing countries. So the fact that the Paris Agreement managed to assert a consensus among all these perspectives was a major achievement. But we know that that achievement is very fragile because we know that it was a product of uh, many trade-offs. And if we do not build these rules in a balanced way, in an inclusive way, at the end of the day, what is at stake is the credibility of the Paris Agreement. So I think in the past, the Kyoto Protocol and other processes were built mainly for governments. And nowadays, we all know that climate change is not something that will be solved solely for the governments. 
it's going to be very critical to also include other perspectives, other visions from non-governmental stakeholders that have also lots of things to say, including obviously local and indigenous communities and women and vulnerable countries that are already suffering a lot of, of the impacts of climate change. These rules are not only about a, an effective implementation, but it's basically a matter of survival for many countries. So one thing that I've been trying to understand is that um, I've been told that, you know, it's one thing to just not pass the rules about these various things, and then it's another to actually pass bad rules. So I'm wondering if you could give an example, what would it look like if they agreed on a bad rule? Like what would be the negative consequences for, say, a certain community or country? We want rules to implement the Paris Agreement, but we do not want bad rules that will cause an opposite effect. One of the key elements that it will be very important to discuss in COP26 is the rules around Article 6. Article 6 has a very critical history. In the Kyoto Protocol, we had carbon markets that didn't necessarily comply or, or reduce enough emissions to be considered successful. But obviously, we are living in a very different moment. We are not only talking about developed countries having to reduce emissions, but we are also talking about the necessity to engage developing countries in, in this reduction of emissions as well. But in order to do that, it's very important to have those corresponding adjustments to avoid double counting. In order to do that, you need a very, very transparent global framework where all the countries can report what they are exchanging. There is also a call to create a global carbon market, but it's a major risk if you don't have a framework where every single transaction will be tracked and will be certified. There are carbon markets in different regions and sometimes are bilateral carbon markets. But just jumping from those couple of experiences to a global carbon market is going to take a lot of effort. And I think it's important to keep building it. But if we do not have that transparency mechanisms in place right from the beginning, if we do not achieve rules that ensure that there won't be double counting, that the Article 6 will actually comply with principles such as human rights respect, it's better not to have an Article 6. We know that it's not always possible to have perfect rules, but it's better to have rules that have certain solid base instead of having something that is super weak that will probably create a major problem. Transparency is going to be one of the core elements to keep building trust. If countries are willing to put information about what they are doing, the other countries will know what is happening around them. And that was Sandra Guzman. Finally, as we'll do in all of these Act 2025 podcasts, for a roundup of the rules issue, we'll turn to WRI's Director of Climate Negotiations, Yami Danier. What does she want to see at COP26 on this question of rules? At the upcoming COP, you know, countries must adopt overdue rules to implement the Paris Agreement in order to foster ambition, promote equity, ensure integrity, and in a way that is inclusive. So, you know, the first set of rules will be the adoption of additional guidance for the enhanced transparency framework, 
which is about individual reporting and review of countries' effort to fulfill their commitments, and the global stock take, which consists in synthesizing and assessing the collective efforts so that it fosters trust. And for that, it needs to be comprehensive, inclusive, and must facilitate a better understanding of where we are where we need to be and how to get there. The other type of force is coming to an agreement on what we call the five-year common timeframe you know, for national determined contributions. A decision on common timeframe must adopt a common end date of all NDCs because at the moment, NDCs can have different end dates so that it incentivizes an acceleration of the pace of action in response to science especially the latest report, in sync with the five-year cycle. This is why we want to have, you know, five-year end date, this common time frame. The third is what everybody talks about, the agreement on the rules for the use of market mechanisms, Article 6, to guarantee environmental integrity for credible, tangible emissions reductions, to prevent the board counting, to limit the influx of Kyoto Protocol credits so that we really need to go where we need to be and deliver additional ambition and provide also predictable support for adaptation. The revenue generated by those mechanisms needs to go to support countries to adapt and also to have the right safeguards for human rights. And uh, what's at stake if, if the rules element is not sorted out? The Paris Agreement set up the destination, safe, resilient, prosperous world. And they told us what plan to catch, when to depart, and when we should get there. And passengers from about 200 countries are expected to arrive safely to the destination. To do that, you need to make sure that the plane is robustly, rightly designed. This means getting the right foundations, the right processes, and that needs to be in place before taking off. And this is the same for the Paris Agreement. It needs a solid architecture. It must be designed with effective rules and processes that are participatory, inclusive, fair, and able to catalyze the ambition action, preserve environmental integrity, foster solidarity, cooperation among countries, build trust that we're going to get there. Is there anything that with your expert eye, you'll be looking out for to see if this is happening or not? Yes, it can be a very technical exercise and there's going to be many countries having different interests in this particular issue. So it's going to be very important to put pressure for them to keep ambition as a key driver. The other thing to watch is to make sure that there's capacity building to get it. It's a lot of data that needs to be generating to get it right. And that requires support, especially from developing countries. So we really need to watch from them. They're going to ask for getting the support to really make sure that they can comply with those new arrangements and new requests. And that was Yami Danier ending this episode of our Act 2025 podcast series, looking at what vulnerable countries want from the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. This one was all about rules. In the series, we'll also be looking at ambition, finance, loss and damage, and adaptation. And you can find them all, plus much more on COP26, what it means and why it's important, on our website at wri.org slash act2025. I'm Nicholas Walton, and I was joined on this podcast by my WRI climate team colleague, Molly Bergen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>